Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for episode 25 on November 14th, 2010. This podcast is part of the Ero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes. For additional information about the guests on the podcast, I also provide background data on the Eero Podcast Network blog at blog.eero.com. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today, I am interviewing Dr. Brian Bledsoe, an emergency physician, researcher, and EMS author. Before we get to the interview, I want to go over some feedback from previous episodes and provide some general updates. Remember to provide feedback on the Air Medical Today podcast. I need to hear from you to improve the show and get your suggestions for new ones. So do contact me. Also remember from episode 24, there was a link to a SurveyMonkey quiz on some of the history of the Association of Air Medical Services. The first four listeners that answer the questions correctly by the deadline will receive a gift certificate for a road ID. Many thanks to Carl Gills, the second president of Ames, for providing many of the early history questions. Road ID is sponsoring the quiz as they are trying to get the word out to all EMS personnel so that we are all aware of cyclists, skiers, runners, and other athletes wearing their identification where you can obtain very helpful personal and medical information. I am personally so convinced of the value of Road ID that I wear my bracelet all the time, even when I am not exercising. For information on their many safety-related products, go to roadid.com. A big thanks to Road ID for their sponsorship. Remember, as I've said in almost every other podcast, uh, that if your program or service has a Facebook fan page, please be sure that it is linked at the Air Medical Today Facebook page. Please just email or call me if it is not. I am always on the lookout for the Air Medical and Critical Care Transport fan pages on Facebook so it is easier for you uh, or others to find your program. I am proud to announce that my program, Gunderson Lutheran MedLink Air, has just recently joined both Facebook and Twitter. Finally, the sponsorship page has been updated with the total downloads per podcast and you can get to it by following the sponsorship link on the homepage. To continue all the work I am doing in bringing news and information and the podcast, I still need your financial support. So if you can, become a sponsor, and your company or name will be listed according to the level of support. Sponsorship is also a great way to highlight your company or name, so do contact me as soon as possible. Today I am interviewing Dr. Brian Bletso. 
Dr. Bledsoe is an emergency physician and EMS author from Midlothian, Texas. He entered EMS in 1974 as an EMT and attended one of the first paramedic programs in North Texas. He worked for several years in Fort Worth as a paramedic and went on to become an EMS instructor and coordinator. Brian has his Bachelor's of Science degree from the University of Texas and his doctorate in osteopathic medicine from the University of North Texas. He completed a residency at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center and at Scott and White Memorial Hospital, Texas A&M College of Medicine. He is board certified in emergency medicine and holds medical licenses in both Texas and Nevada. Dr. Bledsoe has served as the medical director for two hospital emergency departments, as well as for EMS agencies in North Texas. He is the author of numerous EMS textbooks, including Paramedic Care, Principles and Practice, Paramedic Emergency Care, Paramedic Emergency Pharmacology, Anatomy and Physiology for Emergency Care, and many others. He is a frequent contributor to EMS magazines and a presenter at national and international EMS conferences. Dr. Bledsoe is often interviewed by the national media, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the NBC Nightly News with Brian Williams, as well as other regional papers and media outlets. Dr. Bledsoe is Clinical Professor of Emergency Medicine, Department of Emergency Medicine, at the University of Nevada School of Medicine and the Department of Emergency Medicine at University Medical Center in Las Vegas. He is co-chair of the Curriculum and Evaluation Board for the United States Special Operations Command at MacDill Air Force Base in Florida. Dr. Bledsoe was recently named a Hero of Emergency Medicine by the American College of Emergency Physicians as part of their 40th anniversary celebration. He was also named a Hero of Health and Fitness by Men's Health Magazine in November of 2008 as part of their 20th anniversary issue. He is married and lives in Midlothian as well as Las Vegas, Nevada. He enjoys saltwater fishing. As I do with all my interviews, I work out questions in advance with the interviewee, and Dr. Bledsoe is no exception. I realize his name can evoke many emotions with individuals from within the air medical community, so while I will be asking tough questions, my purpose is not to blindside Brian, but alternatively to let him explain, in his own words, answers to my many questions. Due to the potential controversy with the interview, I also ask a number of individuals from our entire air medical community what questions they would ask Dr. Bledsoe. I incorporated some of them into the interview and thanked them for their time in sending them to me as it was very much appreciated. Welcome, Brian, and thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Oh, you're welcome, Ed. I know you've been uh, trying to track me down for some time. I apologize for the delay. Yeah, scheduling this interview with you has probably been the most difficult one that I've had so far. It seems like each time we made contact, you were traveling somewhere. Is this pretty much your normal schedule? Well, it has been, but uh, as of uh, the first week of December, I'm slowing way down. I just uh, can't deal with uh, air travel and the Transportation Safety Administration much longer. Yeah, it's gotten even worse. You've seen all the... uh, videos and uh, stories about these full body scanners now and and at the pilots association is uh, uh, protesting and other people are protesting too 
Yeah, it's, it's just no fun. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you have worked as an EMT, paramedic, emergency physician, medical director for an air medical program, and an educator. How has your background and experience influenced your current views on helicopter EMS services? Well, I think it's all global. Again, as you mentioned, I started out as an EMT and actually worked uh, on a on a helicopter in the mid 1970s as a part of a first response program with the Fort Worth Police Department. When I was uh, a paramedic in Fort Worth, it uh, it all pertains. I guess I've been in this business since 1974. Uh, I've seen things come and go, and and I guess it's just that much experience and. Um, and, uh, you know, interest in the area that, that's brought it forward. Well, then, then from that, how did you become involved in the current debate on helicopter air medical services? And was there a defining moment? Yeah, it was actually accidental, I, I think. Uh, the original conversation came up, oh, 2003, 2004. I was on the governor's task force in Texas on trauma um, the medical director's committee and, and, you know, casual conversation came up about the, the increasing number of helicopters. And then, you know, amongst, you know, physician groups at conferences, we would talk about some of the more ridiculous cases that, um, uh, were coming into hospitals by helicopter. And, you know, it, it kind of evolved from there. What, um, we did an article or two in the journal of trauma back in though the mid part of this decade, and I think kind of the defining moment was uh, uh, Barry Meyer, who was a uh, reporter of the New York Times, picked it up uh, and contacted me for an interview. And that was followed by an interview from the Wall Street Journal by a guy named Kevin Hilliker, who uh, was a Pulitzer Prize winner. And I, I think kind of what once your name gets ingrained in that circle, then you're the you're the person that's easy to find in the call. And so it wasn't really anything intentional. It just uh, came to the forefront. And I guess I was... Uh, either uh, naive enough or stupid enough to speak my mind. Mm-hmm. Has your opinion changed since the, those first days compared to where it is now? Well, I think it's been tempered. Um, the um, I still think many of the the, uh, the the problems that were brought up are, are still there. I think it's still vastly overutilized. I think there's still safety issues. Um, I think that the industry is making some efforts in certain segments to improve it. Um, you know, it, it it can only be fixed, I think, from within. Everybody talks about federal regulation and such, and that certainly plays into it. But uh, it just it it has to change. I mean, this is such a a uh, an integral part of the healthcare system, especially the EMS system. You know, making changes in it uh, are going to take changes in the way physicians think, nurses think. You know, the the operators. You know, on down the line, it's um it's going to happen. You know, by by the group and not any individual. I think. Well, let's go into payment. You you have a fascinating website with a lot of resources. Uh, and one of them, there's a PowerPoint presentation uh, that I downloaded, and you talk about medical industries have gotten out of hand, and specifically boutique, psychiatric, and substance abuse facilities in the 80s, home health agencies in the 90s, motorized wheelchairs, and helicopters in 2000s. Explain what you mean by this. Well, I mean, this was um, actually the... the uh, initial impetus for that came from a, uh, a thing that Paul Harvey did. Uh, but uh, whenever the government increased funding for certain segments of the healthcare market, whether it be home health or, or psychiatric care or helicopters or 
as you mentioned, motorized wheelchairs, all of a sudden, you know, everybody, you know, is in the market uh, after that. I mean, I remember in the uh, 80s when I was a resident, we would be once a month invited to these very plush uh, psychiatric hospitals for a lecture and a nice dinner. And in the 90s, it was home health care. There was one on every corner. We would you know, see a patient with a grade one ankle sprain in the emergency department. And, you know, next thing you know, you get a fax from a home health agency wanting to provide home health care in a wheelchair. And, and again, all these things went away when the government payers identified abuse in it. And, and the same sort of thing has occurred in, I guess, in this decade with the, with the helicopter stuff, as well as, as the motorized wheelchairs. I mean, that uh, actually, if you look outside our niche, is, is a big area of scrutiny right now. You see advertisements on TV is, you know, I got a chair, I didn't have to pay anything. And, and it, it's, it's just the natural cycle of things. And, and these cycles tend to last a, a decade or so that I can identify. And, and, and that was the, uh, the thinking behind that slide. So do you think that's going to happen with EMS helicopters? Do you think that there will be a cutback then? I think it. I think it already is. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, at the NTSB hearings, uh, uh, Robert Sumwalt uh, and and the the people on the expert panel there uh, with the NTSB actually called the the CMS uh, person in that covers ambulance services. You know, we're seeing more and more kickback from the private uh, uh, insurers. You know, the Humanas and, and these big third party payers. So, I think so. I, I uh, you know, I don't follow that real close, but what I'm hearing you know, through through my sources is that there's more scrutiny. Uh, and, you know, you see the media, uh, the investigative reporters in several of these markets, such as Phoenix and Nashville, and you mentioned in your email to me the recent uh, issue down near Austin, Texas, right. where, where it comes to the forefront. All right. But is, is profit the only driving factor in EMS helicopters, especially when we've seen not the not-for-profit uh, side of the industry or community uh, increase also? Well, I, I think that's kind of a loaded question. You know, not-for-profit and for-profit is a very fun line in this country. It depends on how your corporation is set up and whether you have a 501c3 mm-hmm. sort of issue. And, and you know, most hospitals are, are, are quote, non-profit. But I guarantee you they're, they're very, very profit-driven. So I, I think profit is certainly a lot of it, especially in the transition from hospital-based to community-based programs. That's more at the, at the, the high management ownership level. I think when you look at the the providers, the the paramedics and nurses, and the specialty teams. I think their motive is uh, is purely altruistic. I think they uh, they have a desire to help people. They believe what they're doing is helping people, and they're willing to take the risk with that. Um, I think there's just um, uh, a dichotomy, I guess, in the um, uh, in the mission scope based upon what the owners have to say and and what the providers have to say. And you could take that same argument to healthcare or to ground transport and anything of that nature. I guess that's just American capitalism. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a fair answer. I think what I was getting at, um, because a not-for-profit has to uh, make a profit or excess revenue over expenses for them to keep buying capital. Uh, on the other hand, for-profit, that goes to the either the shareholders or uh, venture capitalists. Um, so do you think there's a difference in that respect? Well, I think so. When you when you look back at the original creation of, of the, the helicopter programs, they were primarily hospital-based, and, and it was pretty well detailed in an article by Rosenberg in the Journal of Trauma that the purpose was to uh, to get patients into the hospital, and, and generally not the patients that live near the hospital, the ones in the suburbs who are insured. And, and um, if you look at, the, again, the Rosenberg paper, you know, looking at the survival uh, flight in Michigan in Ann Arbor, 
they generated $62 million in downstream revenue for the hospital costing the, the operation costing about six million, and um, you know I think as as reimbursement was such prior to the depression or the recession, whatever you want to call it, the uh, the hospitals were willing to absorb that. It's like you know marking the Coca Colas down at uh, the grocery store to get you in. But you know when the uh, when the uh, big providers came in and offered to to take a lot of those expenses off of them, uh, you know the bottom line was they really don't care how. The patients get to the hospital. They just want to get to the hospital. So, I think that was the development of that model. Uh, you still see that in certain certain areas where the, um, the the hospitals are really concerned about it from a point where you know they want to control the the operation. But I think the transition is to let the let the big companies do it, and that's you know they're you know if you're a stockholder, you want reimbursement uh, refund or you know payment on your capital on your investment. Yeah, and I think we're. It's over 50% now are community-based versus hospital-based or consortium hospital-sponsored. Um, do you see that trend continuing, or do you think that um, that has met its peak because of reimbursement? Well, I think it's going to continue until something changes. Um, you know, hospitals are just as strapped as everybody else during the recession, and uh, I I, I, you know, if you're a hospital administrator, you know, who are very bright people, you're looking at uh, the bottom line if you can outsource that, like they outsource so many things these days and they're going to go with it. And that's just the uh, the financial reality of it, I think. Mm -hmm. I, I think the pushback, at least from my experience working from the not-for-profits, is to make sure that the quality is still there and is that program still going to be around you know, if, if something does change, where the hospitals were used to to subsidizing, as you said. Yeah, I mean it, that that's true. I I think that I've not seen any significant difference between the various models in terms of of quality. Uh, you know, I'm I'm sure there's examples, but you know, you look uh, at my hometown of Dallas Fort Worth, CareFlight. Uh, you know, the long established program there. Uh, they are uh, being slowly diluted out by the other. You know, players in the area to the point where you know, I kind of wonder about their financial viability uh, beyond uh, the next couple of years. And I think it all is going to come down to what happens in terms of reimbursement, what happens in terms of the FAA uh, mandated changes, and uh, what the NTSB does. And um, a lot of it's just dependent on what happens with the economy. We're going along with this um, money factor. Do you think the growth? Uh, in EMS helicopters was driven by uh, the change in Medicare reimbursement in 2002? Yeah, I believe so. And I think that's the, the, the prevailing consensus. I had a conversation with a fellow one time in Maryland uh, about that who denied that was the case. But every presentation I've ever seen and, and even the discussions that occurred at the NTSB hearings were that, you know, that was the impetus to, to increase uh, um, uh, the amount of helicopters and the operations, and again, you know whether the motive was pure profit or or to provide a service remains you know an individual issue. But uh, I think that's the the conventional wisdom. Do you think there would have been growth without that increase? Probably not to the same degree. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it, and it would probably been more equitable. You know, areas like uh, you know Texas, especially Dallas, Fort Worth, and Phoenix. And these are the areas that are have a lot of helicopter density. You know, uh, I always think back of the of the PowerPoint that Tom Judge has of of Missouri showing the proliferation between 1990 or so and 2009 in services. And it, it's um, 
I don't think the distribution has been equitable. I think distribution has been to areas, uh, parts of the United States, where the economy is good. Right. Should there be a national or even state reporting structure for the utilization review of helicopter EMS transports? You know, that's a tough question. I mean, why would you make the, the helicopter operations different than everybody else? Certainly, right. for, from a healthcare standpoint, you know, we, our hospitals have to report reportable events, you know, adverse events and complications and things of that nature. Um, and it ties into reimbursement. But, you know, while I guess it would be somewhat of a good thing, I'm actually more of a libertarian than you would think, I think that you should not make the helicopter operators uh, meet any higher standard, perhaps, than the ground operators. Uh, but um, I've just found that anytime states or government entities tend to do things, it just is not done very well. And um, I would hope that that with the uh, amount of smart people in the helicopter industry, that, that that's something they can handle internally. Likewise, it's something that needs to be addressed on the ground side as well, and even the fixed wing side. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm glad you mentioned uh, ground transport because, I mean, to really have effective utilization review, you've got to look at it from both sides. You know, should a ground transport that went ground and air was available, should, you know, that been um, put out as inappropriate, just the same as an air transport that should have gone by ground. But, but how do you get that or how do you incentivize, especially in competitive areas where programs are reluctant to talk to the referring physician because they, the physician has another choice. Well, I mean that's the I mean that's the the problem. With all this it's the same in Las Vegas at UMC. You know, we we get a lot of inappropriate transport transfers, not always by helicopter, but um, you know our natural instinct as physicians is to you know call that doctor back and say, hey, it was inappropriate. But you know the hospital is more concerned about the referral patterns and keeping uh, patients moving. And it's the same with the helicopter services. You don't want to really go back to a particular provider or a particular hospital and say, hey, that was inappropriate because they're going to quit calling. So, there, it, you know, really there's a disincentive to, to do the sort of quality issues you, uh, you discuss here mm -hmm. uh, because it impacts volume, and volume is uh, directly related to uh, the finances and, and, and sustainability of the program. So is the, the real issue with... EMS services and what's actually available at the time of the request for transport? Because when you're even looking at it from a UR perspective, um, you know, if there's not an ALS service uh, in the rural area that you're picking up uh, and they could have gone ALS, um, you know, would that increase the usage of air medical transport? Well, I think, I think it does by default. Um, you know, but again, you're taking the most expensive technology you know, uh, and, and, you know, arguably the, a more dangerous technology when the solution would be to in improve or increase the, uh, the ground uh, mm -hmm. transport. And, and, you know, we're making a lot of presumption discussion on, on, on benefit and, and efficacy. You know, not just, you know, has the literature been critical to a, lot, a certain degree on, on helicopters, but it's also in critical on, on ALS uh, ground issues. In other words, you know, studies after study are now showing that out-of-hospital time is not a, a big predictor of survival, or really not a predictor of survival. And, and all these concepts about speed and ALS care, you know, may not be as, um, have the impact that, that we originally thought. And uh, it's, it's 
currently in a state of flux, but um, you know all these fundamental tenets we've had in our textbooks and such about golden hours and you know the need for for speed and 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 what you're up against also is the general uh, public image that people are quote rushed to the hospital and and that speed makes a difference and it's it's just not a helicopter issue it's a ground issue I mean we we we're killing way too many EMTs and paramedics with lights and sirens responses and right um, you know that's areas that have to be addressed as well but. I guess you can only, you know, it, it one, you have to compartmentalize a lot of this and deal with the individual problems and then put it all together later. I, I mean, I hear you, but is the real problem just our whole EMS system in total? I mean, if you, you know, if some areas just do not have the resources, they would send their only ambulance, might be a volunteer service, out of that county or area uh, to go to the hospital. So is that... Is that better from a resource allocation than letting the helicopter do it? It's kind of a chicken or the egg question. I <laughs> yeah. mean, uh, the, um, the issue is if you choose, like I do, to live in, in rural America, you have to be willing to accept that some things are not going to be there. You're going to have – I'm on – in Texas, I'm on a uh, uh, community water system, I'm on an you know, electric co-op that goes out all the time. You know, you, you, you have to make decisions in life about your quality of life and – and, and resources, and if you're worried about um, you know you know your trauma care, which you know you need to optimize, you know that should in fact impact your decision. And if you look at other first world countries like Australia, which has basically the geographic area of the United States, but the population of 20, 22 million like Texas, you know they uh, they just recognize that there's parts of that country that are not going to have the same quality of. Uh, of uh, care that you're going to get in downtown Baltimore or in Madison, Wisconsin, or places like that. It, it's a decision. I, I think that that said, I think there should certainly be some sort of redistribution of, of the current uh, helicopter and even ground ambulance system. But right now, um, you know, without a certificate of need or you know any sort of regulation, it, it's basically a free market sort of endeavor. Mm-hmm. And does the market solve the problem, or does planning? I think it's both, uh, but ultimately nothing really works very well. Um, I mean, it's it's not just a helicopter issue. It's not just a grant. It's just a it's a healthcare issue. I mean, um, you know, come spend a day with me in the emergency department and see the amount of resources we waste. Um, you know, trying to uh, to take care of the, the indigent and the, uh, uh, the very very critically ill and, and avoid the lawyers at the same time. Right, and really. EMS is only a microcosm of of the total American healthcare system, which has always been a push and pull between for-profit, not-for-profit providers, or competition and planning. Correct. Agreed. Agreed. And yeah. you know, we we have the highest uh, per capita, or at least highest percentage of our gross domestic product going toward healthcare of any country. You know, yet if you look at some of the indicators like uh, infant mortality and, and things of that right. nature, we're nowhere near the top. Yeah. What's uh, how have you felt about the uh, health care reform debate? Well, you know, I tend to be conservative in my uh, uh, political beliefs. I, I've not seen anything there that that excites me. Um, you know, there are very few mentions of EMS in the overall scheme of things, and um, you know, the fundamental issue we have to deal with, and I guess it plays into this helicopter stuff a little bit, is we need as a country to decide whether health care is a right or a privilege. Right. If it's a right, then the government should provide it. If it's a privilege, then the system has to continue. Um, you know, we're you, you can go across the border south of here to Mexico, and 
you know, they do have a public system, but if you've never really been enrolled and had a job and gotten their equivalent of a social security number, you don't even have access to health care. So um, we, we've got to, you know, it's always going to be a patchwork fix until, um, until we make that determination. That's not going to happen in our lifetime. And, and really the financing of most air and ground EMS are, are paid for by doing transports, just like anything else uh, in our health system, uh, doing procedures. Um, reimbursement really does not finance the sustainability of air and ground EMS on a 24-hour basis in many areas. And why isn't EMS financed as public safety like police and fire to, to maintain system readiness except for a few places that, that have public programs? Well, that's something I've been bitching about for ten years. Um, I mean, and, and it's true. Uh, you look at um, you look at what the EMTs and paramedics are paid. It's ridiculous. You look at what the pilots are paid. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, um, it. I think what happened is uh, after uh, World War II and 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 you know the, I guess the the group of wars we had. Uh, we really never went back and addressed city and county and governmental responsibility. Certainly everybody wants dog catchers. They want the roads and bridges fixed and they want, um, the, um, you know, police service and, and that such. But EMS is, has always kind of been identified as being a part of healthcare and healthcare is a pay as you go sort of endeavor, uh, in this country. And, um, you know, if you go across the border to Canada or to, uh, to Australia again, the the in those situations, those countries which have a socialized healthcare system somewhat, the 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 role of um, of uh, of ambulance service and helicopters are absorbed by the, the the Ministry of Health through the through the various states and and the and the distribution of costs is spread throughout all the people who reside in that particular state or province, and here EMS has always been a, a local issue. You know, my home county. Tarrant County in Fort Worth, I think there's 37 different geographic uh, geopolitical entities there, each responsible for providing fire police, dog catchers, and, and EMS. And it, it, it's it's just a patchwork system. Well, it's really not a system. It's just a patchwork mess. And, you know, other than Maryland, um, perhaps some areas of Arizona, we, we just don't have a true, quote, EMS system like you see in other parts of the country. Correction, in other parts of the world. Right. Well, well tell us about... Um the research you've done on other EMS programs in other countries, and and is there a model that would fit uh, within the U.S.? Have you seen one that would work here? Well, I mean, it's, it's I guess, you know, everybody goes back and, and looks at Maryland as a model, and I think there's a lot of things about Maryland that are good. It, Australia is a good model, but it's hard to extrapolate data from a country of, again, 22 million to a country of almost 300 million. Australia, all the, the, the states in the, in the territory, uh, have decided to operate their fire police and EMS as a part of uh, a statewide entity. You know, you do have some divisions, like in, in, Mel- in Victoria, you have the Metropolitan Ambulance and the Rural Ambulance, but regardless, they're funded that way. You don't have these various juri- jurisdictions. If you have a uh, uh, a car accident in Brisbane, and you have a car accident in Cairns. It's still going to be a, uh, a, a, a Queensland ambulance is going to respond, and a, and a Queensland police officer in the Queensland Fire Brigade. I think that's a good system. And I I remember sitting with the paramedics that uh, work on the helicopter at the Kingsford Smith Airport in Sydney one time. They uh, they primarily do rescue um, some some patient transport. Patient transport in Australia is primarily handled by 
fixed-wing aircraft, which belonged to the ambulance service, which belongs to the state. But the issue was they had a particular hospital in the northern suburbs of Sydney who was shipping a lot of patients by, by ambulance that was, by air ambulance, helicopter that was inappropriate. And the purpose of the meeting I attended was that um, they wanted to, to meet with the superintendent of the service who I was riding with uh, in uh, the medical society about limiting this uh, particular physician, the particular hospital's use of the helicopter. And, well, you never hear of that in this country other than perhaps some things that occur in Wisconsin at mid-flight or something of that nature. And, and it's, uh, it's just a different culture. The same, but, you know, New Zealand is not bad, but New Zealand is much like the U.K. that they, they, they have a lot of helicopters, but they're operated as trust and really not a part of the EMS system. And oftentimes they're staffed with ground providers. Mm-hmm. So I, I, guess, I guess Australia would probably be the best model. Singapore looks pretty good, but it's a very, very small country. But uh, Australia is a little unfair in that it, it is geographically as large, but the population base tends to be East Coast, West Coast. Correct. Yeah, I mean, well, with, more East Coast, South Coast. Yeah, I right, mean, you have to right. on the West. But, yeah, yeah that's true. But uh, if you look at the United States, it's certainly we've spread from the East Coast, West of the Mississippi. When you get out uh, West of Colorado and over to California, you have a big gap as well. So, right. yeah, I mean, you know, it is, you know, I mean, you're not going to find anything perfect. Um, you know, you know, Tom is getting criticized comparing Wisconsin with, with Missouri. You know, it's, um, it's just you take the best you have. What about Canada? Well, the Canada, you know, interesting system. Uh, you look at Canada, the population is all clustered primarily along the, the U.S. border because of the, the climate. They, uh, they have very strict uh, and, and limited usage of, of helicopters. They uh, primarily fly, you know, larger airframes, usually two-pilot IFR. Uh, don't fly at night except for, I think, over in Alberta. Um, they uh, use heli stops for uh, – Meeting, uh, you know, ground providers instead of necessarily, you know, the scene calls, and and they have a, a a pretty good safety record. I mean, that was evident when the NTSB invited, you know, the the guy from Canadian Helicopters to the hearing, and uh, you know, not that everything is done well in Canada, but um, it's hard to argue with their safety record, and and um, you know, who knows what the utilization is like, though. Mm-hmm. And then we had the criticism too with Quebec not having a, a service. Yeah, yeah, and. Yeah. You know, I don't know what there is in Manitoba, and, and same sort of thing with with Australia or the U.S. You get up in the Northwest Territories, or you get up in the Yukon. You know, you're not going to expect it. And yeah, I spent some time in Alaska uh, earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Same thing there. I mean, if you you just used to live in Alaska, you know, you're just going to be stuck if you have a healthcare issue, and and then it comes down to your personal decision whether it's a quality of life or, you know, your concern for for your length of your life, I guess. Yeah, I've had the opportunity to be up there too, and it's uh, some areas are, you know, it's fixed wing only into very small airports is the only thing available. True. Well, helicopter EMS must have some over triage given the alternative consequences, and you, know, you mentioned the uh, story from Austin, which got into that because they were complaining about how much it cost them because uh, it was over triage. What what's your viewpoint on that? Well, I think, you know, statistically, you have to have over triage to, to assure that people get the care who are going to benefit from the care. Likewise, you need a certain amount of, you know, you need to watch your under triage. You need to make sure that there are people who are not transported that are. And that goes back to your question earlier about, you know, ground, you know, that should have gone by air. Mm-hmm. The, the question is, what what is that over triage rate? You know, people always quote the American College of Surgeons says it should be 40 percent. 
That seems a bit high. If you look at the mathematical models that have been done, it, it should be probably 10% over triage and 4 to 6% under triage. But again, before you can even do that, you need to go back to the literature and determine exactly you know, where is the efficacy. I, I think that certainly in trauma patients with high injury severity scores, you know, 20 to 30, you know, helicopter transport is worthwhile. So how do you identify those? And presently, we don't have a good scheme for that. You know, this inter-hospital transport stuff is is even even more of a problem. So, yeah, I mean, it has to be over triage in anything. Uh, we admit way more chest pain patients that have ischemic heart disease. Uh, and, and the concern is you don't want to miss those that don't, the under triage rate. So that, that's a part of medicine. That's a part of decision making. And, and part of that, too, is what's available at the time of the transport. Um, you know, what, what field data that you have versus a retrospective, you know, look at uh, whether the uh, transport was appropriate. Well, that's, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, I, we talk injury severity scores, we talk TRIS right. scores, and those are all retrospectively applied. Um, you know, and, and if you look at the data, some of which came out of the, the helicopter research, you know, we do know that for the most part, mechanism of injury is probably a poor predictor, uh, other than falls from greater than 10 meters and, and, and you know, auto pedestrian sorts of things. Uh, it, so what do we look at? I mean, uh, do we look, you know, and it's going to come down to physiologic parameters and, for some reason, there's not getting much much traction at looking at that, and um, I think that that's what's coming. You're starting to see some data come out looking at various models for determining that. Uh, the, uh, uh, the other issue too is is to do that, you have to again demonstrate where is the effectiveness. Uh, do you want uh, you, you can't hold uh, paramedics responsible for decision making of a trauma patient to the same degree they would for a medical patient and things of that nature. It has to be stratified. What then are the most appropriate types of patient categories for helicopter EMS transport, in your opinion? Well, again, the first thing you have to do is divide it between ground and, and inner facility. But looking at ground transport, certainly patients with high injury severity scores, which can be somewhat predicted by the trauma score, the revised trauma score. Uh, if you look at the data, primarily patients in you know, injury severity score runs from zero to 75 and anything greater than 15 is considered severe injuries by the American College of Surgeons. You know, it, the data is shown clearly, and this is one of the few areas where the helicopter data is pretty clear, is that um, patients between 20 and 30, 35 or so do benefit. Patients who are low would not benefit you to expect, but also those who are so severely injured, they're probably going to die anyway. At the top end of that, don't benefit as well. So, uh, you know, you're willing to accept those people as transport. It's just a matter of trying to give the field providers data to, to, to accurately and reliably identify those people who fit in that category. And we're just not there yet. Mm -hmm. uh, will we be? I think so. I, uh, you know, you're, you know, we and the emergency medicine side of the house are always critical of surgeons because they are slow and in their response <laughs> to things, you know, uh, but, um, I think so. The the new criteria that uh, are being developed, again, by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine, American College of Emergency Physicians, National Association of EMS Physicians, and the uh, uh, Air Medical uh, Physicians Association is, is, is going that way. It's basically a hybridization of the, the position paper that the American College of Emergency Physicians published in in uh, February or March of last year that's really been, been ignored uh, and slowly coming to the forefront, I guess. What are some of the specific changes with the criteria? 
Well, you know, first of all, there really are no criteria. Uh, there, there are dispatch criteria that Steve uh, Thomas and Dave Thompson, some of those guys did several years ago, uh, dispatch criteria for, for helicopters, and that's been extrapolated to be utilization criteria. Uh, the criteria that's – I haven't seen the most recent version of the, of the document uh, that's not actually out yet from the joint position paper from those organizations, but it's basically the patient needs a quality of care unavailable by ground. They, uh, uh, you know, ground transport will not get the patient uh, to a facility within a predefined interventional window, uh, ingress, egress issues, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, local resources being overwhelmed, such as disasters and such. And, you know, there, there are still some, some fine points, I think, being argued in that. But that's basically kind of, a, again, an extrapolation of the, uh, the ASAP paper that uh, we presented uh, with Mike Abernathy uh, at the uh, Air Medical Transport Conference in San Jose last year. Right. Um, and, and talk about that. Has there been additional work since uh, you presented that in 2009 at the Air Medical Transport Conference? Well, we, we uh, published uh, a, a derivation of that in the Emergency Physicians Monthly, and we had something in GEMS. And uh, I think we, we, there was some traction with it, but nothing is actually changed. And, and that that Madison criteria that Mike called it uh, was based more on the ASAP criteria uh, with some, some conditions that he was seeing specifically in Wisconsin. And, you know, if, if these bigger organizations uh, are, are, you know, who are really more involved in the industry are addressing it, then, then our, our job is done, I guess. And um, we'll see. I, I, I looked at, uh, in Denver here a couple weeks ago, looked at the, the, the draft that was available then for the position paper and really thought it was pretty good, you know, uh, other than you know, a few minor points that uh, may or may not be addressed. I wanted to go back a little bit. We had talked a little bit about the story that came out of Austin. They also went into the issue of membership programs. Um, what are your thoughts on programs um, from both a clinical and financial perspective that offer membership programs? And really, it's air and ground that do this. Yeah, it is that. Um, you know, and the, the the concept of memberships kind of began when you know, these EM, ground EMS services began doing the public utility model. You know, an, another funding source which you can't argue with, and and then you know when when Aravac came into Texas and and then later PHI, they came in with these strong membership programs, and that forced some of the other providers like CareFlight to do that. We don't have that out in Nevada, but um, I guess financially it makes sense. Logistically and uh, ethically, I'm not sure it does. Um, even prior to the article in the, uh, uh, the paper uh, down in Austin, there was actually a news report down in Austin, which basically the story was a, uh, a kid was transported or somebody was transported by Aravac, and they had a, or they were transported by the San Antonio uh, Air Life, and they had a, a membership with Aravac, and uh, it, they didn't cross cover it. But even before that, two years ago, the Four Star Telegram ran an article, actually in my hometown of Middle Othian, Texas, where they um, had the same sort of issue. You know, they were calling a helicopter at that time, PHI, that was actually further away than CareFlight, and the um, uh, patient really didn't want to go by helicopter, and there was a big bill. And then at the same time, crews were reporting getting in on scene and having patients, hey, call this company because I have a membership there, but, you know, this company's closer. And it, it creates kind of an ethical and logistical issue for the, uh, for the paramedics. Um, I'm not sure from a, uh, from a personal finance standpoint how good it is. Um, you know, I, you know, if you don't have insurance, you have Medicaid, which are a lot of the people that are involved in this, it's, they're not going to 
it's not going to benefit them anyway. So right. I don't know. It, it's um, I guess it makes business sense. It's uh, it's just one of these things that's uh, maybe socially a little problematic. Yeah, I think uh, Northwest, you know, all the programs up there have a, a consortium type thing so that they do cross cover so you don't get into these issues. So if you're you know a member in Spokane and you're um, are in Portland or, and transported, you know, it covers it. And I can I can see from an individual financial point of view, uh, even the twenty percent copay or whatever it might be still can be pretty hefty. Yeah, and the other side of this that, that people don't talk about a lot, and it's not just with the the helicopter and the grant animals memberships, is it's it's seen as kind of an entitlement. You know, well, gosh, I got to go, you know, from place A to place B. I have a membership to XYZ Helicopter. We'll just we'll just call them and or this particular ambulance service. And you know, we used to say, oh, you know, Medicaid patients are the ones abusing the ER, abusing the ambulance. When you look at the, the studies, it turns out that that people who actually have insurance or people who uh, who have the means are more often the abuser of these situations than than the indigent or, or the welfare type population. So, you know, it's just, I think that just plays into our culture in this world, in this particular country, is, is we, we have an entitlement mentality. And, you know, if I have AAA and, you know, car tire goes flat, I'm going to call them instead of uh, getting out and changing the tire myself. Right. The um, We had talked touched on this. Um, you know, if you look at the Adams database, we are significantly – underserved in large areas of the country, mainly out west. If you were the federal EMS director, how would you structure an integrated response system nationwide? And then where does air medical transport fit in? Uh, or in other words, what do you think is the perfect EMS system? Well, I think the perfect EMS system is, is again, similar to uh, to what they do in Maryland, although it's not perfect. That is, the, the helicopter operations, and I think the fixed wing needs to be integrated into the EMS system um, that is dispatched by a common center mm-hmm. with uh, pretty specific utilization and review uh, processes, and, um, and, and there would be a limit. Uh, even looking at Maryland, you know, one, one of the things we didn't really understand when we were on the review panel after the Trooper 2, two crash is why in Maryland do trauma patients you know, get the Maryland State Police Service for free. But if you're a medical patient in the in the state of Maryland, you use the private services at you know fifteen to to twenty thousand bucks. And I think that that would be the way to integrate. You'd have to people smarter than me in the air medical industry or uh, who are in the air medical industry would have to, to, you know, what is the proper density of aircraft per population center? You know, and at what point do you use fixed wing? And at what point do you use ground? But uh, and that's similar to what you see in Australia, but. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's no, that's never going to happen in this country. Do you think we're getting closer, though, just with the cost of running dispatch centers, that they can handle multiple programs or air and ground? I think so. I, I, there has to be a complete trust between the, the parties, but, but I, I think that's true. I, I, you know, even in Las Vegas, you're not going to see the fire department dispatching the private ambulance companies. And likewise, you're not going to see the private ambulance companies dispatching the fire department. It's always going to be these these lines. I can't see, you know, the MEM system in, in Baltimore dispatching, you know, uh, uh, MedStar and these other helicopters up there. I, I just just don't see it happening. Whereas you can get a group of providers, private providers, you know, PHI, AeroVac, you know, Air Method, some of these other services, and they may cooperatively agree to do that. But I guarantee you they're going to they're gonna watch that dispatch center. Mm-hmm. 
Brian, you mentioned uh, sitting on the review panel for uh, the Trooper 2 crash in Maryland. Uh, what, what did you learn from that? I guess in a few words, all that glitters is not gold. Um, hmm. You know, and, and I always cited that as a good, good program, and I think it is a good program. They do a lot of things right up there, uh, including, I think, their system design. They also do a lot of things wrong, and it, and it came out in the, uh, in the review of the Trooper 2 data. You know, for example, uh, in the Trooper 2 crash, which occurred in uh, uh, Warwick area, you know, south of Washington, D.C., you know, it was a mechanism injury call, and, and the weather was, was, was marginal, and the pilot actually made a comment to, to dispatch that, well, if a particular service out of D.C. was flying, well, we can fly too. So, so here you saw the system that you thought was, uh, was uh, impervious to, to flaw must um, uh, be influenced by a private operator operating in the D.C. area. And then as we, we started looking at it, uh, again, they do a lot well, but we were concerned that they weren't CAMS accredited. We were concerned that they, you know, didn't have any Part 135 responsibilities significant to speak of. Mm -hmm. And we were, we were concerned that uh, they only fly with one, one paramedic and then they, they make, you know, various ground providers, crew members uh, of, the, uh, of the air crew. And, and, and one of those is the one who died in the, in the crash on the way to, to Andrews. So, you know... And, and it goes goes both ways. You can say, well, gosh, you know, signal, I mean, dual engine aircraft, you know, IFR, or a panacea. Well, wasn't the panacea there? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think it has to, there has to be a balance. And, and again, I don't want to get too far on the aviation side because I will make myself look stupider. But, um, you know, I, I think that was the issue. The, it, the problem is uh, what what's going to happen up there. They really haven't responded much to, to the recommendations from the panel. They, you know, replacing their aircraft. Uh, but, um, the, um, you know, what did happen, there's kind of interesting in Maryland and, and it actually happened before the, the panel, which two of which were, you know, we, the panel was seven of us, Tom judge from Maine, life Light of Maine and fire chief from San Diego, two trauma surgeons and, and two emergency docs. And, uh, what, what we did see is before that, they had already required ground providers to call the physician that shocked trauma for, you know, these category C and D, these primarily mechanism injury calls. And and uh, by the time that we saw data, they'd already decreased the helicopter usage for trauma in Maryland by about 40 percent. The last data I saw from Dr. Bass, Dr. Flocare, uh, was they're down about 50 percent. Now, it's still too early to determine whether they're missing people who should go. But the data they're, they're getting so far shows that they've cut their flights by 50 percent and haven't had a significant demonstrable impact on mortality. So um, that's, that's good, I guess. But um, again, all that glitters is not gold. Mm -hmm. the, I, the other criticism that I've heard of the system is that one of them you've already pointed out, which is you know taking a caregiver from the ground who might not have uh, the experience in the air and just putting them on the aircraft. I mean, all kinds of red flags go up with that. They have not addressed that? Not the last I heard. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think they're still planning to, to staff their aircraft with one pilot and one, one paramedic. And, um, you know, all, we, all that panel was was a review of uh, the Trooper 2, 2 incident, a report to the legislature, and it's up to, up to them to determine that. But um, that, yeah. that, was, that was pretty much unanimous in, in, a, in a concern. Uh, that and and uh, the um, you know the the, you know, the the lack of crew resource training and such for these ground providers. Right. 
I think the other, and of course it is a mixed-use system because it's police helicopters, is the number of helicopters they have, you know, what they're spending in capital and staffing all those versus, you know, having two crew members on. So just how the resources are put there. Because Maryland's not that big of a state and quite a few bases. Yeah, and they're replacing eight of their aircraft. Right, Um, I saw that. You know, it's, um, you know, what was kind of interesting is... um, that system has been so well sold in Maryland through Cali and, and subsequent things that the people don't want to change. They're willing to pay that twelve dollars or whatever it is per auto tag. Right. You know, and, and perhaps they're right. Perhaps that's the way we should address funding helicopter EMS and ground EMS is a, is a surcharge on auto registration or, or something of that nature. Because certainly it's not going to come from ad valorem taxes or you know things of that nature. But um, uh, not not in this economy. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about ground transport. Uh, what metrics would you support to measure the effectiveness of ground BLS versus ALS versus critical care transport, and then on to air critical care transport? Well, that's a tough question. Um, you know, basically, ground BLS transport is is um, is transport. You know, there's certainly you know care provided in, in such with BLS. You'd look certainly at transport times. As you start looking at the higher tiers of, uh, of of service provision, I think you need to start looking at outcomes if possible. You need to look at at, at measurable data such as you know uh, ICU days and and uh, sur- you know emergency surgery uh, situations and things of that nature. Um, and then you need to look also at the complications. Uh, presently, that system is not in place. And um, again, as with the criticism of the helicopter side of the house, there's really not a lot of data to uh, to show what works and what doesn't. You know, there's so many. You know, I've had a textbook that's now in a seventh edition, or I guess eighth, whatever it's in now. Uh, that um, you know, we've gone 180 degrees on so many things in EMS that. Um, uh, you know, it's just hard to establish metrics. So that's a good question, and that's a good criticism, actually. Mm-hmm. Further, what are your thoughts uh, and any research shown on the effectiveness of the use of PEDS and neonatal specialty teams, air or ground, versus traditional critical care transport, uh, you know, using a MDRN, RNRN, RN paramedic, or RNRT? Several questions there. Uh, I think w- when you look at look, look at staffing, if you look at the studies out of the United States, they they pretty much demonstrated, and, and Mike Abernathy may argue with me a little bit, but they've demonstrated that that nurse 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 paramedic crews function quite well. Um, if you look at the European uh, systems, Germany, uh, Scandinavia, uh, Italy, some other areas, they primarily use physicians on the helicopter. Um, and and they do report some better outcomes as do the Australians. So staffing has to be be determined. Um, and the other part of the question was I forgot. Um, well, just um, you know what your thoughts on the effectiveness of these specialty teams. Oh yeah, I well first of all again there's no demonstrable benefit for pediatric specialty teams. Uh, if you look at the you know the the issues with kids. And in, in trauma, um, you know, the study out of L.A., a couple of other studies showed that unless they, again, have these high, these high injury severity scores, uh, they, uh, they really don't benefit. The study out of National Children's Hospital showed an 82% over triage rate for pediatrics. Now, now, I think there's certainly a role for neonatal teams. I think that early intervention 
by a neonatal specialist, whether it's a physician or a nurse practitioner or whatever, makes a difference. That said, I don't think that transport needs to happen by uh, by helicopter because many times these neonatal teams will spend you know an hour or two on the ground. If, if you look at Columbus, at Ohio State, uh, their helicopter program, they are primarily using the helicopter to to do a rapid insertion of a neonatal team, and, and then once the baby's stabilized or transported. By ground now, certainly the attending neonatologist or, or certain factors override that, but I think that that's a, a good use of the helicopter. It's rapid uh, uh, and uh, it, it it is you know makes places accessible. But once the baby stabilizes, there's really no reason to uh, to transport by air. But then it comes back to the point: well, how do we get paid? Again, I guess Ohio State decided to to eat that, whereas these other providers are going to have to transport the patients, justify the uh, the cost of doing these rapid insertions. Right. Because there's no reimbursement to get the team out there, there has to be a patient on board, which gets back to the how the system's funded. Exactly. Uh, requesters of air transport will often wait for a children's team, but not for an adult team. What is your hypothesis as to why this is, and, and is this appropriate clinically? Boy, that's a tough question. I, <laughs> I. Um... I don't think it's appropriate clinically. I, I think that regardless of the age of the patient, you have to take the patient as an individual. I think that because we have compartmentalized pediatrics from adult medicine, I think it's acceptable. I mean, even at our hospital in Las Vegas, we have a separate pediatric emergency department. I've only been I've been the, only been in the place three times, uh, and, and I think that's uh, that's just part of the U.S. healthcare system uh, that we we've, we've compartmentalized some of these specialty areas and. Um, why should not a septic shock adult uh, have the same sort of attention? I, that's it, it's a non sequitur to me. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the role of the medical director. You've you've been there. Uh, if there are inappropriate helicopter EMS flights, then what is the role in the medical director of stopping them? You're talking about the medical director of the helicopter or yes. of the, uh, yes. the ground service uh, helicopter. Well. I, I think that's exactly what uh, Bob Bass and Doug Flocare did in Maryland. You know, they 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 you know were thrown in the media with the crash of Trooper Two. They were already doing kind of a review of some of this, and they they made changes. But that's probably the only system in the country that that will happen because if you're working for one of the big uh, for-profit companies and you're the medical director, you start turning down flights, you're going to be unemployed. Um, and it's the same in the in the hospital. If I start turning down transfers when I'm the charged physician, then I'll be unemployed. So, the the medical director in this situation is not omnipotent. Um, if you look at it from the ground side, I think there is a role there uh, in in the uh, uh, the ground system. Medical directors taking a critical look at um, at, at usage, and I know this is happening in, in Nevada, but. Uh, it happens in other areas because uh, the, the you know there's going to be immediate feedback. There was a, a, a Doug Koopas, who's the uh, state medical director for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, was telling me about a situation in, in two of the counties down near Philadelphia, where uh, very similar geographically, very similar population-wise and, and economically, where in one of the systems, after the uh, uh, a paramedic would summon a helicopter. Uh, the medical director would send a questionnaire out to the paramedic about, you know, why was the helicopter called and what were the patient's conditions. And um, interestingly, when they looked at it next year, the number of flights in that county had decreased significantly compared to the county that that did not occur. 
And what's kind of funny about the whole thing is they never even looked at the it looked at the, the the sheets. They just put them in a drawer. You know, just the idea that they were being scrutinized. You know, improved their utilization, and and that uh, actually some of the literature shows that too. Whenever programs are provided that that educate the crews on proper usage of the helicopter usage declines, at least temporarily, and uh, so I, I think that's the role. I. Uh, uh, the medical directors of the helicopter services are not going to, to do that unless they, they just want a temporary job. Well, I, I think you'd get some argument on that. And I've certainly been at programs that have done good utilization review. And, you know, of course, it's part of the CAME standards to, to look at that, and they do scrutinize it. I think it's back to my earlier comment of maybe how that's done, especially in a competitive area. But it, it, it can and is done. Well, you can look. I mean, it's a case study that, that Mike Abernathy gave when we were doing the Madison talks. Um, mm-hmm. And that was a, you know, 14-year-old kid burning leaves in Wisconsin, you know, 100 miles from Madison. Uh, the local physician at a small hospital calls the, the, the burn care center, and the doctor says, yeah, it probably could benefit from burn center care, but send it by ground. And, and so the next thing you know, Abernathy gets a call, you know, wanting a helicopter. And he said, nah, no, it's probably not necessary. You know, you underdose the kid, give him some more opiates, and and um, and then send him by ground. Well, about, you know, two hours later, they get a call from the competing service who's bringing the patient in. So right. e- even if that even if that occurs, you know, there's still going to be ways around it. So it, it has to be more global. Than, you know, the medical directors need to be intimately involved, but it needs to be addressed at different levels. And interesting, from, from my standpoint in Las Vegas, which is very unique um, – I think most of the ground transports we're getting are appropriate, uh, at least on trauma. We don't get much medic, but, but the, the inner hospital stuff that's coming in on the medical side is, uh, is not appropriate, you know, for the most part. Uh, and um, I think that we have done a good job of educating the ground providers, but now you know, we've got this whole area with the, uh, with the inner facility stuff, the stuff being sent to the big facilities that could readily go by ground, but um, nobody's going to say anything because they want the referrals. Uh, as a hospital and the helicopter service is not going to say anything because they want the business. Well, can technology be used then to help uh, transport triage decisions? Have you have you seen any increased usage of any type of technology to help us? Not really. You know, I mean, there, there was there's some some technology that's looked at, um, you know, triage decision making, the SACO method, and things like that. But mm-hmm. I've not really seen anything. You know. Uh, a lot of it, unfortunately, and even on the physician side, is, is based upon emotion and um, and sometimes fear. You know, a lot of what what you know the bigger hospitals get is some you know you know physician working in a smaller hospital or physician assistant or something who is is overwhelmed by a case that would overwhelm just about anybody, and they get to a point they either don't know what to do or they reach the limits of their 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 capabilities and. Um, and they want them out, and they want them out now. They don't care what it costs. They don't care how they get there. They just want it out. And um, perhaps uh, the bigger hospitals, referral hospitals like we work in, you know, we could work on our outreach and 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 work on ways to help help that situation. And um, and we haven't. We're just too busy taking care of sick people, I guess. Well, I, I still think Brian, you're going to get arguments from a lot of the the medical directors, uh, you know, and I've known a lot of them, worked with a lot of them that really are trying to do what's right. And, you know, your uh, case study with, with Mike on that transport in Wisconsin, were you trying to do the right thing? Um, I, guess, I guess it's really getting a common 
set of standards that everybody. Yeah, yeah and you can't. I mean, it, yeah. I guess I'm wrong to generalize. I I was up uh, in a panel in Colorado here last month with Mike Brunko from uh, uh-huh. uh, Life for Life of Denver, and he said exactly the same thing. I mean, he, he these you know certainly the two hospital based programs there where I talked to the medical directors are doing doing review. Uh, and but you just have to be real tactful about how you go back to that transferring physician or that transferring paramedic, and you know even then there's even the hospital based services are walking that fine line of uh, not pissing off the the referring people. You know, I know uh, I spent a number of years at Duke, and we developed a fairly extensive outbased ground system, and that helped us in triage since so many of the transports were. Uh, cardiac related, where the patient needed a critical care team but didn't need the speed. Um, and, and I think that's the way things are going as well. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but, um, you know, you're going to get a pushback, um, you know, from certain segments. Yeah. Let's talk about helicopter EMS safety. You've written extensively and are usually quoted after a helicopter EMS crash. So, what's your opinion as to the root cause of helicopter EMS crashes? Well, I don't think I have any any crystal ball. I, I think you know the the causes are pretty much out there. One is um, a a push to fly, whether it's you know profit or nonprofit. I think that um, there is a, um, uh, a a lack of understanding of, of of the proper utilization. And then another thing, this may actually upset some people, but I I think that yeah, there's a lot of meddling between the two sides of the operation. Uh, we healthcare people, and throw myself under the batch, are kind of control freaks, and, and we think we understand the aviation side of the house. We think we understand you know, flying, and we want to be involved in, in some of the decision-making. I think that, that you know, if you look at the aviation sector, they're pretty damn safe. You know, there, there are various um, uh, components, and um, and you look at the medical side, maybe we're not so safe when it comes to medical errors and such. And I think that, that blurring the, the line between the pilots and their decision-making and, and the medical crews. I mean, I would never – I fly, and this is no exaggeration. I've done almost 3 million miles with American Airlines. I've never actually once wanted to stop by the cockpit and advise the pilots on the weather or, or whether to take the flight. If I don't want to take the flight, I'll get off the airplane. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, you know, that's – it's you know, it looks simple. You know, but but I know it's not, and um, you know we. Uh, I don't know. It may seem controversial, hard to imagine coming from me, but I think that's part of it. Uh, I think that um, uh, you know, the, I think the pilots have been been cornered to a limited degree in in, in some of this. Well, are you talking about that uh, because they know about the type of transport? On the things that were happening in the 80s that we we tried to stop by sort of keeping the pilot out of the loop, you know, not running in saying, you know, if we don't go, this patient's going to die. You know, just have them purely look at it from a aviation perspective. Is it safe to fly weather-wise or... Well, I think that's part of it. Uh, if you look, there was a survey done a few years back by the, uh, the, uh, the EMS Pilots Association, and they said there's a just a pressure to take flights. And several years ago, I guess two or three years ago, I visited a friend at a local helicopter base. He's a helicopter uh, uh, paramedic. We go back 20 years, and there was a, uh, a, a poster board on the wall that had blocked out the number of flights they needed to reach profitability for that particular base. Mm. And, and so even though you may isolate the pilot from the medical decision-making, he knows that there are three 
three you know flights into the eight or ten they need, and, and they're not going to get it. And if you if you look back at that line pilot survey again, there was a pressure to fly, there's a pressure to uh, to speed, you know, take off and decision making and such. And is that something you really want? I, I want my American Airlines pilot to carefully think through everything before he he pushes back and. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't know where this is where this has come from, and um, it, it's not just affecting again the uh, the private services. Look at Trooper Two; exactly that happened with Trooper Two. So it's it's a general problem. Yeah, because the, the the they're really part of the team. The crew's right there, so they do know what's going on. Even though you try to say, you know, please don't take this into consideration. I know from being the program director with a number of programs, anytime we've gotten into a, a budget issue, I've always gone in and talked to the pilot separately and say, I don't want you to make any decisions based on that. But, I mean, I understand. They still, you know, you know, know all those things, and you don't want to keep them completely in the dark. Yeah. And it's a job they love, you know, and, right. and it's, their, it's their career. I mean, it's like going to the hospital and, and you know, telling, you know, medical director that, um, you know, we're going to have to lay off a few you know, a few doctors, uh, you know, because their numbers are down and y'all aren't working hard enough. And it, it, you know, it goes both ways. So I, I think that's, that's a big part of it. There was, uh, in the last podcast, uh, Dr. David Lamb, you know, was talking about the history of uh, Arabac and Air uh, Medicine. And he actually came up with the statement, because I've always felt that, you know, the pilot should be separated from any clinical knowledge of what the flight's about. Um, he was sort of questioning the opposite, that maybe they should, because maybe they're hurrying too much when, um, you know, we don't have to uh, land rotors turning and, you know, rush back to the, the hospital. Yeah, I guess he had a good point. I guess there'd have to be some education on the part of the, the pilots as to what, what medically is, you know, some medical patients need to go fast that don't look so bad and some don't. It, you know, can't argue with his thought, I guess, on that, but um, yeah, it's I, an I issue. Was, yeah, I was also uh, an area that I am not was not that familiar with is with uh, organ procurement. Um, you know, with the University of Michigan crash, and there's been others. Uh, and I'm not saying that was the the factor, but again, you're so close. You know, you're rushing in and out. You know, hey, we've got to go to harvest. We only have so much time to harvest the organs. Then they get there, and you know, after hours of surgery, are rushing back. Uh, does that put pressure on the on the pilot because they're right there they see it versus you know your example in the uh, American Airlines uh, you know you'll get the announcement that you know there's going to be a delay for maintenance or there's an issue you can't go down and yell at the pilot I mean you see a lot of people yelling at the the counter which does no good but uh, uh, you're separated well it's the same thing I mean what happens on days when you can't fly because of the weather Right. Yeah, in a helicopter. I mean, you know, it's just, it's just, and one thing I noticed about pilots, and and certainly not a pilot, not one, uh, never been one, but um, they they seem pretty reasoned in their approach to things, and uh, and unhurried sometimes. And again, um, you know, if, if it's a day they can't fly, they just accept it, and um, and it goes that way. But we medical people are, are just the opposite. We're we're type A's, and we've got to do something, and. I'm the same way. I can have a slow day in the emergency department. I'm going to go pick up some other things to do, see other patients, and uh, I guess it's just um, just the, um, the the personality differences. All right. 
You focus a lot on helicopter EMS, uh, but what about ground EMS safety? Uh, you know, realizing that helicopters, you know, a mistake can be catastrophic. Um, there are actually many more ground EMS crashes, uh, but only seem to be uh, reported on locally or perhaps uh, statewide. Um, why don't you focus on ground safety too? Actually, I have somewhat. Uh, we do know, you know, what the incidents are. Certainly, you know, if you look at the number of ground transports per uh, uh, number of accidents per ground transport, and compare it to the number of accidents per air transport, there's a significant difference. We also know what the uh, what the occupational fatality rates are. If you look at EMS in general, uh, occupational fatality rates like 12 to 18, depending on who you read, per 100,000 per year. If you look at Dr. Bloom's data for, for helicopters, it's 70 to 120, 130 per 100,000 per year, depending on which year you look at. So we do know that, that the, uh, uh, you know, the, the fatality rate is certainly higher. But that said, you've got a great point. And, and um, the, uh, the, the ground accident rate is unacceptable. It's increasing. We've been talking about it. One of my partners is involved in uh, in a lot of that, and and things are finally changing. NFPA just issued a, a document that uh, reinforces the need for um, for improved ground transport. One of the things I've written about a lot that that may not be exactly linked to this is to reduce the the use of lights and sirens. You know, mm-hmm. coming back again to my hometown of Fort Worth, they transport all their cardiac arrest. Um, by uh, uh, without lights and sirens because either they're dead and you leave them or you resuscitate them in transport. So that's a lot of it. I think that um, I think that the NTSB probably should take a look at the at the grand ambulance industry. Uh, there was a, a picture recently that, that came through one of the things I read uh, that was a crash again in Maryland, uh, Chevy Chase, I think that uh, uh, one of these big Freightliner ambulances was hit by a, a drunk. And I was, I mean, it looked like a tornado uh, hit the, the vehicle. I think the, the grand ambulances need to be subjected to standard automotive engineering um, standards. They need to be crash tested. Um, so, so it's a problem, um, you know, but that's kind of the standard diversion whenever we talk helicopter. Well, isn't grand ambulances just as bad? Well, you're not just as bad, but it's bad. And then the next thing you hear, well, uh, isn't healthcare dangerous? Well, yes, it is. It's dangerous. We've got to work on that. We're talking about this. Or, you know, the final resort is, well, what if you're mom or dad? Well, you know, you've got to take all that emotion out of this, and, and, and you're doing that. Uh, and and you're right. I mean, I think it's a fair criticism of me that that what's been what's made the national media has been um, has been about the helicopters. But but at at, at some degree, I've been been criticizing uh, the grand animals as well. And, and interestingly, I've made it a policy. I, I've really had my say. You know, people know where I stand. They know what the issues are. When the, when the, the care flight crashed occurred five miles from my Texas house, a good friend of mine who's a, a, a um, uh, principal with care flight called and asked me not to comment. Well, I told him, I've already decided I'm not going to comment. I really am not. I mean, what's the point? You know, it's just pissing people off, and uh, the message is there. So, you know, it, it it's you know it, it's 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 time to um, to let the people who are really experts in this fix it. Uh, you know, I guess I'm just kind of a naysayer, but there are people much smarter than me that will sort through all this and come up with a solution. Well, before we uh, finish up on the ground and, and point well taken, but um, my my experience sort of started on the air side, and then when I came over to the ground side, I, I tended to notice that you know there's. I think more things that we can learn from the air side as far as securing 
bags and equipment. Um, you know, if you've seen those um, videos of the back of an ambulance, you know, in a crash of the number of things that are uh, flying around, the things that aren't secured, even the personnel might not be uh, in a proper uh, seatbelt. Uh, we don't look at even helmets or any type of uh, safety equipment from the ground side. I mean, any comment on that? I think you're exactly right. I, I don't disagree with anything that you've said there. Um, you know, restraining patients, uh, restraining the, the providers, uh, helmets, all, I, even taking some of the the safety culture that, that occurs in aviation to the ground side as well. Uh, you know, Nadine Levick is kind of the critic of uh, yes. of uh, the ground side, like I guess I'm the pariah of the, the helicopter side, but, you know, Nadine's made some excellent points. Uh, Nadine, you know, uh, you know, says our ambulances are too big, they're not safe, and, and you get pushed back. You know, you get pushed back from the from the sector. I think another thing that's kind of unique in this country, related to the ground ambulance accident, is, is, is the workforce. I mean, EMTs and paramedics in this country, as opposed to the other first world countries, tend to be young, uh, often you know, teen, late teens, early. You know, early 20s, maybe into their 30s, they they less experienced drivers. I think they've done away with a lot of the emergency vehicle operator courses. I remember when I was a paramedic in Texas, we had to go to Austin and take the DPS course, driving those old you know Blues Brothers police cars. And, and I think that the ambulances have become um, more difficult to operate. They've gone to Freightliner chassis with air brakes, with different uh, centers of gravity. And um, I I I think that. You're exactly right. I think that, that we're remiss. I think that's a, a big problem, maybe just as big a problem, maybe more of a problem. Uh, and I think it's a fair criticism of me. Yeah, yeah I think a lot of the uh, folks are on the air side that have started critical care have you know, developed that uh, with their programs. I'm not uh, – I can be as critical of, of them too, but you know, certainly you know, what's your go, no-go equipment like you do in the, in the helicopter and – the point you made about drivers is uh, something, you know, we have all this training and recurrent training uh, for pilots, but yet in some states you really don't need anything, you know, to drive, you know unless the program uh, requires it. That's true. And, um, you know, as long as EMA, EMS pays as poorly as it does, then you're going to see that. You know, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's an itinerant workforce, unfortunately, where, you know, I've stopped in EMS stations in, in, uh, in, in Canada and Australia where, Guy's working on ambulance my age, 55 years old, and, you know, he's been on that same ambulance 30 years, and he's lamenting retirement. You don't see that in this country except in the fire service. Mm-hmm. Uh, switch, switching gears a little bit, what are your thoughts on uh, civilian EMS helicopter response in a disaster situation like Katrina? Um, do we need to have some overcapacity built into the system so that we, we don't take down the rest of the system to respond to something like that? I think that's true. I, I don't, I'm just not sure where it should be. Um, yeah, we're, they're already doing that with the grand ambulances. I know AMR signed a big contract with FEMA. I, I think that's true. I, the thing is, to what degree do you build up the civilian fleet to to, to justify a you know, potential disaster like Katrina or Rita, and then how do you pay for it? Uh, you know, and then and you have to take into consideration what what's the military component uh, of that, but. I think that that's true, but again, how do you get a, a helicopter down from Michigan, you know, to help in uh, in, in New Orleans or something of that nature? I, I don't know if that's cost effective or not. Right. Well, uh, 
Finally, let's talk about uh, research. You reference a number of research studies in your publications, you know, saying that helicopter EMS has a little or no impact on patient outcomes. Um, I'm sure there is an equal number of studies that show that it does in, in certain areas. And I, I don't want to get into arguing studies, but uh, why does it appear, at least, that you refuse to engage in a debate with peers about peer-reviewed scientific studies uh, that demonstrate either the effectiveness or lack of effectiveness of aeromedical services? Or is, is that a correct perception? I think it's a perception. I, I've done several debates. I debated with Steve Thomas, and, and uh, who's a good friend of mine, by the way, in, in, in Tucson a couple of years ago at NMSP. Did a debate, I guess, last year uh, out in California at the California EMS Authority with the uh, medical director from CalSTAR and from REACH and from the California Highway Patrol. And then last month we debated in, in Denver with Mike Brunko, a great guy, the medical director for uh, of Flight for Life in Denver, about it. You know, that said, and, and, and you know, during these debates, for the most part, we're, this is all collegial. The, the quality of literature, either against or for, is, is poor. Um, and what's happened with this, uh, with EMS, the helicopter EMS stuff, like a lot of things EMS, is that the, the product was placed on the market without the, the uh, anticipatory, anticipatory and the preemptive sort of research needed to prove it works. If we were making a medical device, we would have to go through all these hoops to, to demonstrate benefit and then continue to demonstrate benefit. But basically, it was put on the market and say, prove it doesn't work. But the same thing happened with mass pants and, and some other kind of things. So, so the, the literature uh, is poor. Uh, the literature I cite is poor. The literature Steve cites is poor. You know, Steve Thomas, though, at Tulsa, a great guy, a good friend, and a fellow Texan, is doing some good things. I think Steve's clearly demonstrating that, that these higher injury severity score patients do benefit. Um, but uh, at the same time, you've got uh, literature of equal quality showing different things. The problem is it's hard to take data. A lot of this data has come out of California that's, that's, that's negative against the helicopter service and compare it to Tulsa. Likewise, you know, if you look at the data that's come out of New England, Boston MedFlight and, and Connecticut and some of those problems, it's, it, some of those systems, has all been pretty positive. You know, it, it's just it's like, you know, people arguing who has the best imaginary friend. You know, the data is so poor that, that we really don't know. But, you know, what's happened here, you know, from an ethical and uh, standpoint, there's been a reversal of the burden of proof. Here's a service proof it doesn't work. That's not the way science and medicine works. It goes, we're going to have a service. We want to show you it works. And, and, and that's what happens. And so uh, it, it's, it's going to – it'll be fleshed out, I think. Um, but, again, one of the things that uh, NTSB recommended and – that several of these people recommend is we need some sort of nationalized reporting system. When we did the Journal of Trauma article in 2006, it looked at the over uh, triage in um, in trauma patients. Uh, we had 37,000 patients. We found that generally over triage, you know, that is people uh, who had minor injury severity scores less around 60, 65 percent. You know, we kept getting kicked back through the peer reviewers saying, well, you need the number of, of, you know, per flight and things of this nature until we get, you know, people willing to open their data up to, to, to non-biased researchers. You can take me out of the equation. That's fine. You know, you know we're never going to really know. But, you know, right now, again, there's been a reversal of the burden of proof. And, and I have engaged in, uh, in, in these debates. And, you know, we meet afterwards and, and sit and drink coffee and, you know, agree that, that really – the quality of day of the way is poor. 
Isn't that true, though, Brian, of all EMS? I mean, when you say that it hasn't really been proven? I mean, because really the helicopter piece came, you know, from uh, the Korean War, Vietnam War, saying that it was effective, um, you know, in, in transporting uh, severely injured or uh, in the war case, injured, but uh, ill patients here. I mean, but isn't that true of all EMS? Oh, yeah, it absolutely is. Yeah. And um, it's, um, you know, but the same thing. You look at Korea and Vietnam, you're dealing with high-energy penetrating trauma. Right. Uh, and, and they were not being medevaced, you know, 300 or 150 miles to a trauma center. They were going to a, you know, MASH unit or to a battalion aid station, getting surgery there. Uh, and certainly, you know, that those data are valuable, uh, but you can't just apply it across the country to a farmer in Iowa or something of that nature. So that, you know, it's, uh, it, it does need to be researched. And certainly your, your point is, is good that so many things in, in EMS are based upon rational conjecture or, or, you know, the experience. But, but when you really look back, you know, sometimes there's a lot of falses. For example, I don't know if you remember the mass pants. Mass pants, when I was a paramedic, I used to swear I'd seen, you know, Lazarus sort of awakenings with mass pants. And and when we actually researched it, you know, of course, studies out of Houston and, and out of Kansas City showed that the outcomes were actually worse when patients got the mass pants. Well, then you heard people say, well, gosh, I remember in Vietnam, you know, they saved so many lives. Well, guess what? Mass pants weren't in Vietnam. You know, they 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 tried them on eight patients you know, four Vietnamese nationals and four U.S. soldiers and had uh, really no good outcome. They were not in Vietnam. So so a lot of times, a lot of this stuff, you have to go back and, and research the data. And that's the same issue we're addressing with the golden hour and lights and sirens. And, you know, look at what we're dealing with right now from, from an intubation standpoint. I never thought I'd have to be addressing in our paramedic books the issue of, of the need not to do intubation. So it, helicopter EMS has just got caught in this 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 trend, the thing about helicopter EMS is just so damn expensive. And then, then you've had this, uh, this accident rate, especially in 2008, that's brought it to media attention. I think if the accidents didn't occur, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you know that uh, your name evokes a lot of response, uh, uh, much of it negative in the uh, air medical. Um, have, have you seen yourself kind of as a sage that you had to to make these points to wake people up? Well, I can say that and people wouldn't believe it, but, <laughs> but you know, yeah, I think so. I mean, it goes, what's Bledsoe's motive? You know, it, it, I could be honest. If, uh, if a, another patient or one less patient doesn't die or one less pilot or one less nurse, one less paramedic, then it was worth it. You know, it's, um, and, and people may never believe that, but, but it's the case, you know, I, and, and really, I have uh, been trying to avoid things such as this because I've really had my say. It gets to me like Sarah Palin, you know, and you get to a point where you're shrill. And there are much smarter people out there like Steve Thomas and Mike Abernathy, people who are really flight people who need to be involved in this. And, um, and, and, and that's where it's going. I mean, we've identified the issue. You know, and, I, and I've moved on to other things. This is, um, this is something I didn't really mean to get into, but I got into it hook, line, and sinker. You know, I've got other research projects that are much more mundane. I'm develop, developing the EMS fellowship at the University of Nevada Medical School. And um, I got, you know, I've got textbook revisions ahead of me. So it's, you know, people are going to like it. Hey, it's kind of interesting, you know, uh, uh, Ed, that I still get all these emails. 
You know, it always begins the same way. Dear Dr. Bledsoe, please don't use my name, but. And they tell me some story about a manager at a base or sometimes I get, I get sent dossiers of, you know, these things occurring in these helicopter services. I don't have a clue what to do with them. I, I don't do anything with them. But, um, you know, I, I got to say that of the emails, uh, about 90 percent is positive. Ten percent thinks, thinks I'm the Antichrist. And you can probably take you can probably take that. A hundred of my friends and ten percent of those will say that. So <laughs> it is what it is. And and generally speaking, I mean, not generally speaking. Overall, the flight crews and the nurses, the paramedics, the pilots. These are great people doing a good job. They're an important part of the the EMS system. They they are risking their lives to help people, and um, and they are making a difference in certain situations. The thing is, I think our role. You know, is to assure that they, their risk is limited either by their own decision, or by you know uh, a higher authority that is you know the medical community, so that their risks are, are are attenuated. That is, they're not taking unnecessary risk by transporting patients that don't need it, uh, and that that the only indication to to transport a patient should be purely medical necessity, you know, including of course weather and such, and not the need to keep a base open or the need to to turn a certain number of flights and things of that nature. And and if I'm the price of it, you know, it's uh, you know, I've still got to go clean a bathroom here in a minute because my wife told me to. <laughs> well, there's uh, I think there's a number in the community I've heard it. You know, is you know what if Dr. Bledsoe's right? You know, God forbid. Yeah, I mean. Uh, and maybe not, God forbid. I mean, maybe we need to, to look at these things. Well, I think it's emotional. I mean, uh, the only time I've really had a pushback from physicians are, are some that are so ingrained in their medical industry, they're members of the big associations. And even then, it's very collegial. I've not been treated poorly by anybody. You know, I'm sure things happen on the, the flight web and these other lists and such. But, you know, if, if, you, if you hang your neck out there, then you should expect to get splattered. Right. And uh, it happens, uh, you know, but it is what it is. Um, you know, I, like I say, I've, you know, got some interesting research stuff going on that's absolutely different than this, other than uh, it involves trauma and such that, uh, that I really need to move on to and have been moving on to since the last year or two. Yeah, you're certainly well published. So is, is that the things you mentioned, those are what you're concentrating on now is updating your textbooks? Yeah, and, and I'm going to get on a watch list with TSA if I don't quit flying. So <laughs> I, I'm serious. I did 100, I'm right at 100,000 miles this year. Ugh. And uh, other than, than, than just the routine travel between the Las Vegas and the Texas house, um, other than two or three conferences, I'm, I'm going to concentrate on clinical work, some research, and textbook revisions. It's just that um, I found myself at some of these conferences just going through the motions, giving these lectures. And I ever said, if I get to that point, then it's time to take some time off. And that's what I'm doing. Yeah, I would just, as I said earlier, just trying to nail you down to a time. It, it, it was difficult. Well, I just have one very last question. You list on your website that you like saltwater fishing. How did you get into that? Uh, well, first of all, I've always loved fishing. And um, our, as, as our kids were younger, we always headed for the Texas coast. That's uh, what I was wondering. We've done a lot of it. I, I just had a, a text message from my son earlier today. He lives down in Houston, and the only reason he took a job in Houston is to be close to the saltwater. Uh, he caught ten flounder at Rollover Pass over in Boulevard. So, uh, my wife likes to fish. My, you know, it's just it's just what we do. I mean, some people are mountain people, some people are desert people. I guess we're ocean people, that, which doesn't explain why I live and practice in Las Vegas. But um, 
that's what that's what I like to do, yeah. and uh, it's relaxing. And I guess I could uh, become a helicopter pilot. <laughs> that would not be relaxing. No. But uh well Brian, thank you for taking the time and especially on a on a weekend to be on the podcast. It was a real pleasure getting to know you better and uh hope the listeners feel the same. Well thanks again and everybody please fly safe. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the website. Remember, if you would like to leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Remember to take the Ames History Quiz for a chance to win a road ID. The link is in the show notes. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as a theme song for the podcast. Stan's work can be found at roomtuneenterprise.com. Take care and fly safe.